Cape Talk. Plan B with Rebecca Davis. At a quarter to four. Good afternoon, Rebecca. On the Daily Maverick, several books. Great writer to be found in lots of places where good writing is to be found. Uh, let's begin with a trip to India you have just taken. Yeah, well, I wanted to discuss um, more broadly our, our president's current obsessive drive for foreign investment, which we know he's, is his big thing, really. He's promised $100 billion invested in South Africa over the next few years. So far, he claims to have met about $20 billion of that. As a result of trips so far to Saudi Arabia, UAE, and he was in India, of course, last week. And, you know, Mike, having witnessed um, Ramaphosa kind of on the seduction trail. <laughs> That's a good expression. You can see how good he is at this, right? Yeah. And you can see that, that business people recognize in him a fellow business. They say, this guy gets it. And, you know, it really inspires confidence. But I, I have concerns about this, this, Drive for foreign investment, which obviously, you know, on the face of it seems amazing, but is it really the the panacea in terms of our economic issues? And one of the things that bugs me is the the vagueness of these commitments that Ramaphosa comes back with, right? So he came back from uh, Jeddah and he said 10 billion investment from the Saudis in the bag. And it was only, I think, last week that we heard a bit more detail of what that would be, which is the Saudis building an oil refinery or petrochemical plant somewhere in South Africa. So it's still very sketchy. So there's this substantial vagueness about what these commitments will actually um, amount to. There's also the effects, and we've discussed this before, on, on foreign policy, right? So Ramaphosa prostrates himself before the Saudis. He gets these quite vague commitments of investment, and then it effectively leaves us sort of you know, emasculated when it comes to criticizing any Saudi foreign policy for the foreseeable future. And God knows the Saudis need friends. You know, it's a kind of desperate alliance. But then there's also the fact that, you know, foreign investment is not aid, right? It comes at a price. This isn't charity. And the way Ramaphosa was interacting with Indian businessmen last week, really, you know, he was absolutely saying, we will do anything. We will do anything for you that you need in order to come here and create jobs and build companies. They were saying, you know, we need fast-track visas. He said, no problem, no problem. We need better e- energy supply. No problem, we'll sort it out. And obviously some of this was, you know, talk. But um, there was the general sense that really it would be red carpet to foreign businessmen in the foreseeable future. And my question is, Mike, isn't this how we ended up in the Gupta situation? I mean, this is, fair enough, the Guptas were crooks, and it's to be hoped that future foreign businessmen will not be. But um, let's not forget that the, the reason the, vi- the visas and uh, citizenship of the Guptas was expedited ostensibly was because they were coming in, creating jobs, and going to make this massive contribution to the South African economy. And that's why so many you know, hoops were kind of jumped over in order to get them what they needed to do business. And it just seems like we're, we're going to set ourselves up for another situation like that if we keep promising foreign businesses that they can have their way in every sense when it comes to doing business in South Africa and also probably promising them things that will be difficult to retract down the line, you know, in terms of preferential ways of doing business, tax reforms, stuff like that. This isn't something that doesn't come at a cost for South Africa. And I think that, you know, to to think that this is going to solve all our economic problems is probably short-sighted. I know it's unfair to uh, tarnish the, the, the entire relationship with India through the framework of the Guptas, mm. but presumably that was, that was 
either the elephant in the room or spoken of a lot on this trip. I mean, you surely can't go to India looking for business and talking about investment without the Guptas being almost everywhere in the conversation. You'd think so. And Ramaphosa did address it sort of head on. He said, you know, some of you have been up to funny business in South Africa. He referred to rent seekers from the Indian side, not so much. Um, I was interviewed by an Indian journalist who was asking what the South African response to Ramaphosa's um, business seeking in India would be. And I said, honestly, I think there will be a fair amount of cynicism as a result of the Guptas. And he just stopped. He stopped taking notes immediately after that. So there certainly wasn't any kind of willingness on the Indian side to discuss the Guptas. But obviously, you know, the one good thing about it is that it does provide a kind of warning template for us of what can happen when you do bend over backwards too hard for foreign business and foreign investment. And the whole continent, a uh, magnificent book by uh, Richard Poplake and Kevin Blum about the price you pay for Chinese investment uh, a- right. across this continent. Extraordinary book, just detailing how it works in, in specific spaces. All right, let's move on to something we've been talking about already. Helen Ziller, Peter Bruce floating the idea that maybe she'll fragment off into her own party. But the, the tax revolt idea, has that caught your imagination? It's such a strange concept for a serving pr- provincial premier mm. to float. It really is. And you may have seen today the DA's Pumzila Van Dam taking her on Twitter in a fairly confrontational way, saying she just didn't understand how this would work. But w- what is insane to me about it, Mike, is that Helen Zilla seems to be completely overlooking the fact that the Western Cape economy, the DA's flagship province, does not operate as some kind of you know, independent province as much as they wish it might. Much as the Cape Party, who we're talking to at four o'clock, would like it to That's be. That's right. Yeah. It hasn't, in fact, seceded yet. It's not an independent economic entity. The Western Cape, like the rest of South Africa's provinces, is propped up almost entirely by national taxes. I was looking up the figures, and 97% of revenue that goes towards provincial government is from taxes. One, about 1% is, is raised by provinces independently, and they get about another 2% from their own provincial taxes. But basically, everything that pays for education, healthcare, roads in the Western Cape comes directly from national tax collection. So if Zilla wants taxpayers to stop paying tax, that means that the Western Cape will be as screwed as the rest of the country when it comes to the provision of basic services, and it just seems maddening. It's, it, it, I mean, it is maddening that that she hasn't thought this through before, before taking it publicly in that kind of reckless way. And I was mentioning earlier, once you get into the notion of allowing people to think that tax is a selective thing, I can pay it when I choose. Uh, that would be the end of our tax base. Uh, that would it would be it would be the beginning of the complete fragmentation of a already small tax base. That's right, not to mention the erosion you know, of the general commitment to the rule of law. Because uh, this yeah, is a the criminal commi- offence. No, it, it's, uh, I don't know where, I, I, I know where it came from, but how it emerged into the public space is, is another thought altogether. All right, let's focus on the ANC. Now, I hadn't seen uh, this extraordinary ad campaign, mm. um, which you're going to talk about until you flagged it. It's a most remarkable thing. What, <laughs> it is very explain strange, to that. people... Explain to people what it shows. Is it- the ANC has, has created this ad which features a kind of assembly of extremely attractive women sort of twirling in front of the camera in soft focus while they discuss the improvements the ANC has made to their neighborhood and, you know, the changes they see in society at large. But it's filmed in the most extraordinary fashion because it really does look like a, a Dove ad. It looks like a skincare commercial. One of the women is filmed... You know, she's wearing a kind of um, strapless top, but she looks effectively naked in a good portion of it. And there's just this, just the manner in which it's filmed 
is obviously intended to dwell on the attractiveness and sensuality of these models rather than any particular and political it's a sort point. of flicking of the mane right. and sort of uh, adjustment of I mean it the Twitter streams are hysterical but I mean it really does look like a makeup ad it looks like a makeup ad and uh, Fikile Balula who of course is the ANC's election head and you know when you hear Balula <laughs> election head you're not surprised that ads like this come out of it he has said you know, these models are not scripted. They're just, you know, regular South Africans coming to tell the good story. Um, but I was more interested in leaving aside the obvious sexist, you know, problems with that ad it, about whether using attractive models in political ads actually works. Because, I mean, there is this kind of, I think, truism that hot people sell products in general and whether that would apply to politics is more open to question. We know, of course, that attractive candidates tend to win more votes, but these aren't candidates. They're just people on the streets. So I did a bit of digging into this, and at least one study found that attractive models are only beneficial to selling a product when the product is specifically appearance-related. So if you're selling skin cream or clothes, then people do care about the attractiveness of the model because there's an aspirational quality, right? You, like, mm. I'll, I'll buy that. I'll look like that. In other respects, though, there's no indication in fact, that using a hot model in any way emotionally endears you to whatever is being sold, which in this case is, you know, a raft of economic and social policies, which makes the whole thing stranger. And in fact, another study found that using less attractive models tends to make people less conventionally attractive, tends to make people pay more attention to an ad, actually. Because there is this element where you see an ad like that and you kind of blur over because it does look exactly the same as every other Because it looks commercial. like an ad. It, it, it does. doesn't feel like your world. You're not being reflected in it. Exactly. Not to mention that political parties presumably are tending to appeal to, you know, the everyman, the everywoman, the ordinary South African Joe. So I, I would imagine that this could have a campaigning back backlash effect in terms of people just looking at this and going, that's not me. I mean, what are you guys doing? This, this, this woman doesn't it, look it, like it me. It is extraordinary. I've never, ever, in many years of watching political advertising around the world, I've never seen anything like that. No, I can't think of another example Anywhere. in U.S. politics and the no. U.K. politics, for instance. And the ANC apparently just thinks that you can take the, the normal the normal aspects that would sell beer or something and apply it to politics and it'll work. And, well, I guess we'll see if it does. See, Rebecca, as always, great pleasure. Thank you very much.